Hello and welcome to the 29th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. This month for our Controversies and Contraband series, we have the pleasure of talking with anthropologist and lecturer at Goldsmiths London, Dr. Helen Cornish, who will be talking to us today about the history of modern day witchcraft. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's really nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Helen, would you like to start? Well, today I have a cup of green tea. So green tea, nothing boozy in there. Nothing boozy in here, I'm afraid. No. That's all right. You're in the beautiful seaside town of? Of Brighton. Oh, yeah. my If you God. listen carefully, you may hear a seagull. Oh, yeah. If you listen outside, you may hear construction. <laughs> <laughs> Not half as nice. Well, um, I was going to say, so this topic that we're talking about, um, I know that there is a lot of taboos around it. And when I said I was going to do an episode on witchcraft, I got quite a few like eyebrow raises, which I'm not surprised by, which is why I felt like it was even more important that we talk about this in an episode at the very least. So what I'd like to ask you just to kind of start off... um, well, firstly, tell us a bit about yourself and then what got you interested in the history of witchcraft? Okay. Well, I think it's important to say, first of all, that I'm an anthropologist and I'm not a historian. Okay. And as we have this conversation, I think maybe some of those um, some of those differences will, will become clear. Um, but I am obviously really interested in history. Um, but I'm interested in an anthropology of history. I'm interested in what history looks like as a subject and how we might think about um, the reliability or evidence. Um, And I think this is a really important question for us generally, let alone for histories of witchcraft in the world today, because we've been through huge conversations around postmodernism in history and whether if what we all think is okay, then that's enough evidence. Um, or disputed histories. And and I think it's really important before we start this, that I'm not in any of these conversations about history ever suggesting that history doesn't matter or that people can make up their own ones or that real events didn't happen. But that there is there needs to be sort of a, a difference between that and understanding that how the past is always interpreted and made sense of is necessarily going to change on who's doing the looking or the speaking, whose history it is, how connected you are. So while you've introduced me as somebody who's interested in the history of witchcraft, I think I need to explain that it is the history of modern witchcraft. I think maybe you did say that. Um, yeah, I did. Yeah, you did. Um, but it's not really the, that, that history of um, early modern witch trials or ancient paganism that I'm looking at. It is how today's witches themselves look at those histories. So it's a a bit removed. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think even though this is more of a a history-esque series, um, I think that there is uh, ways in which you can approach history. You don't have to necessarily be talking about the Salem Witch Trials, although that is very interesting. But you can also look in the ways in which people interpret history and make make sense of it. And we'll be talking about revisionist history within the Mm -hmm. witchcraft community um, later on. But I think one question that I'm sure our listeners are all wondering is the big, big, big question, are you a witch? I am not a witch, no. But um, I have now been hanging out with witches for more than 20 years, um, witches and occultists and pagans. We will unpack some of these terms as we go through. Um, 
And there was one book launch I was at where I was explaining to somebody that I had recently been part of an academic conference about whether you needed to be an insider or not. Mm. And she said, oh, yes, that's very important. It really matters that um, insiders have the, you know, have the chance to talk about their, their histories and their practices. And I said, yes, but I'm not a witch. And she went, oh, you've been hanging around with us for too long. You know, it doesn't matter anymore. What is inside and what is outside is um, Mm. sometimes more complicated. Well, and I think that's the thing when when you are a researcher or if you're a journalist, you know, if you're from any field that requires any type of um, in-depth knowledge of a particular topic, I think there's this assumption that uh, if you have, especially with witchcraft, if you have an interest in it, then you must be a witch. Um, I really like Halloween, but that doesn't make me a ghost. So, you know, I think that uh, it's important for people to understand that, you know, we can have interests in all sorts of things and that doesn't necessarily, maybe for some people, you know, maybe they grew up in it and so they they have that interest. But then for other people, it's because they didn't grow up in it that they find it really interesting <laughs> because it's so different than what they're used to, which was definitely the case for myself. So I think it's good to sort of lay that out there and if we ever get into discussions about insiders and outsiders we can uh i don't know we can just take that and run with it i suppose um but that leads me to my next question what is the difference between a pagan a witch and a druid and more to the point what is the difference between traditional witchcraft and wicca oh that is a really interesting question but can i just say one more thing about the last question yeah go for it um well What I also wanted to add to that is when I started doing my research, I was really interested in historical witchcraft, which is probably why I I get a bit confused about some of those early questions, Um, because I was interested in historical accusations, how the body, how questions around gender were a factor in those. And I was sort of on track to do that kind of research. Um, But I was also, as I've just said, really interested in those questions about historiography and how histories are created and negotiated and when I was doing my MA I was interested in how the body of the witch was represented in the Museum of Witchcraft in Cornwall so I went down there to have a look and while I was there the Graham King who had just taken the museum over made some passing comment about how students were always coming through the door really interested in historical witchcraft accusations but what he wanted the students to be looking at was the history of modern witchcraft because witches were having arguments about history Mm. and i knew a little bit about modern witchcraft and wicca but i didn't really know they were having arguments about history and this seemed to bring all my interests in questions about history as a troublesome subject witchcraft um all together in a really interesting question I wasn't interested, as Graham you know, was suggesting, to find out what the history really was. There were plenty of other people doing that, like um, Ronald Hutton, for example, professor of history at Bristol. And his work has been hugely significant in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really inspired by the work of another historian, Diane Perkis, and her book, The Witch in History. But it was in those spaces between historians and witches and these arguments about history, which is where I found my, my kind of home. Yeah. Um, so um, no I think it's really important and I think it's always there's always a bit of a journey that happens with the work that we Mm. do you know you you go at it thinking you're going to study one thing and then I think 
anybody who's ever done research on any topic, no matter how big or how small, they always think they're going to focus on X. And then they, they go down the rabbit hole, or in some cases, a bazillion rabbit holes. And then they realize what they're actually going to talk about is Y, or even Z or Z, depending on how you want to say it. Um, and it, and it ends, you end up finding your place, but sometimes it's in the like a way you just never really anticipated before, which um, I think is true for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, but yeah. within this community, could you tell us, because there's different hats that people wear. You know, some say they're a hedge witch, some say that they're a traditional witch, some say that they're a druid. Could you kind of simplify in, you know, so many words, like, I know it's complicated, but could you just give the listeners a general idea um, in a simplistic fashion what the differences are between these terms knowing that there are exceptions to all of them. There are exceptions to everything and everything I say will be contested and challengeable, but um, it's really not straightforward. But really on a very general rule, the word pagan usually gets used to describe kind of a generic umbrella term for many forms of nature religions, which might include um, like a love of nature as a spiritual path, for example. It might resonate with ideas about how you build like experiential relationships between humans and kind of unseen non-humans, whether that's animals or plants, stars, even stones, in a very animated and spirited kind of material world, that everything has a you know, has a has a spirit, um, and maybe to respect the seasons and be in time or in sync with the energies of the cosmos, rather than the constructions of industrial human life. Often polytheistic, so, you know, um, venerating many gods rather than one, seeing itself perhaps historically as some kind of um, prim more primordial or more ancient religious practice. Um, but usually these days with the recognition that whatever formulation they are working with has a modern construction somewhere. Um, under that umbrella of pagan, you will find lots of people who say, well, I'm um, maybe a, a druid or a Wiccan or a witch or maybe a heathen um, or some other kind of um, spiritual, maybe magical religious path, but somehow situated within that bigger sense of that reverence and in being in tune with an inspirited natural world. Um, but it really is not for everyone. You're going to find plenty of witches who will insist that they are not pagan. Uh, maybe they see what they do as a, a form of occultism that they see has got nothing to do with an inspirative sense of nature. It's got much more to do with... Um, uh, uh, maybe like ritual, of, potentially? But probably ritual, yes. But that there will be other forms of sort of unseen threads that they are engaging with, but not this sort of um, nature-based um, practice, which they would say is... Um, implied by the word pagan. Mm, mm. And what about a druid? Because normally I think of trees, but I know they're definitely not trees. <laughs> I think that trees are a very um, potent symbol for many druids, along with the sense of the outside and of nature of the natural world. But I think um, you know we often see the words druid and witch in tandem, perhaps as um, sort of sub-identifications. That's not really the right word. Um, within pagan traditions to describe very simply two different modern magical religious traditions as contemporary religious paths, maybe with you know, distinct histories of creative revitalization, whether that's through Druidry rooted through the writings of 18th century antiquarians 
and lots of contented his, contested histories about the authenticity of those histories, but nevertheless, with a, a vibrant, live, you know, um, practice today through um, si significant organisations like British Order of Druidry or OBOD, the Order of Ovates, Bards and Druids, for example, hmm. with kind of clear training practices and membership um, Kind of so belonging. it's quite extensive. I, I think what you're trying to say is that it's not just, oh, a pagan is X and a witch is this and a druid is that. It's, it's actually quite an extensive network. And with it, that there are just a myriad of interpretations and variants of those interpretations that yeah. are all under these big, unknowably mm -hmm. big umbrella terms like witch, druid. Yeah. And it's not something that should just be taken for granted because within that, people are going to have their own interpretations of what that term means to them. Is that correct? Yes. And there'll be plenty of people who will call themselves a Druid without having you know, distinct membership of a particular um, kind of grove or, a, you know, an organisation, just mm -hmm. as there are plenty of people who will describe themselves as a witch or as a Wiccan, we'll get to those, um, without being a member of a secret initiatory only group. Um, so it's a much kind of more flexible, broader um, set of practices and religious identities, I think, today. Well, could, could you tell us a bit then, you know, if we just focus in specifically on witchcraft, which we know is a big term, um, what this difference is between um, a traditional witch versus somebody who practices Wicca, what does that mean? Well, again, I think these terms, they really, they really illustrate how complicated some of the terminology, some of the practices, and some of the really rapidly changing perspectives on how things are explained or understood or experienced. Um, because I think if you asked me this question 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, it's going to be a different answer. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly the words witch and wicker for the greater part of the second half of the 20th century, I've just got a Bumblebee. It's okay. Don't give him a kiss. He'll leave you alone. <laughs> Floating round. Um, the word, the word, um, the words witch and wicker in the second part of the 20th century were often used as synonyms and will mm. still be used as synonyms, I think, today. But whereas you've got the right, you know, the rise of druidry as that significant organization, the mid 20th century saw the rise of witchcraft as a distinct magical religious organization, largely um, uh, through the work of Gerald Gardner's writing, when witchcraft was positioned as a um, as the continuation of an ancient pagan fertility practice um, okay. with ancient priestesses as its helms. Um, venerating a, a horned god. Um, and it tends to be suggested through his writings, through his interviews, through other people writing about Gardnerian witchcraft, that the word Wicca um, is a, a, an ancient word, an old word for the wise, um, but also that it was, it described this historical form of religious witchcraft. So it meant it could be separated from the accusations of early modern witches. So if you could as, say as demonic witches. So if you said, "Well, I'm Wicca or Wiccan," sorry, um, it might make you seem less of a threat to society potentially. Yeah, yeah. yes. Um, and it also, 
for many practitioners, witchcraft practitioners, it now implies a certain form, um, formal structure. It will imply that you belong to something that is in some way or form connected to the um, initiatory, um, often secret, but certainly intensive form of um, witchcraft practices that are connected to either Gardnerian witchcraft or possibly Alexandrian or, or, or other contemporary group. Um, this is seen today to be kind of very distinct from the idea of a traditional witch in Britain at least, um, which is then seen to be connected to maybe the work of the wise women that we see you know, in or cunning women in um, British history. This is also a very problematic and difficult history if you are a historian, uh, because you know those persons did exist, but they are also not really uh, um, ancestors for contemporary witches. But through the work of traditional witchcraft, that's the kind of practices that they are making connections to. Mm. Now, if you are in North America, the distinctions between traditional witch and Wicca are very different because it is much more likely but if you hear the description of a traditional witch, it means that it is an authentic um, connection to Gardnerian tradition that has um, um, moved from Britain to America. Mm. So traditional witchcraft there is yeah, um, a form of witchcraft that will directly trace its ancestry to Gardnerian covens, whereas in Britain it is usually to infer that it is a different historical path, sometimes yeah. used to mean that it's more authentic or older or you know less written um, or a different route. Okay, so um, it, obviously this is this is quite intense, and yeah. I know that having taught a course on neopaganism and not being a specialist, I found when I was doing the reading. You know, I, I picked out a few books and I started mm. reading. I thought, okay, this will be pretty straightforward, and then I started actually reading the material and going, okay, okay. Um, obviously did not appreciate the level of stratifications that are involved just in terms of labeling. I mean, in, in, in society in general, labels can be very complicated, but even within, you know, the, the magical communities, they also have a lot of, of labels attached to it and people can get quite sensitive. <clears throat> um, but you did mention, you know, so we're talking specifically about British witchcraft for the yeah. purposes of this particular episode. But I think quite a few people might want to know where is witchcraft practice? And I think before you we get into that, um, I know within some fields, this idea of witchcraft, um, people talk about witchcraft in the African uh, subcontinent or they talk about witchcraft in other forms of the, of the East. And, and those do exist. Um, but they are, a, and again, having done some research on that, that is a whole nother beast. It is a very, um, it's a it's a topic that deserves its own episode it at the does. very least, let alone yes. an entire degree. So uh, for the purposes of this episode, where is um, westernized, I guess you could say, and again, I'm, I'm probably more Eurocentric, I think is the right way to put it, uh, witchcraft normally practiced. And I think when Eurocentric, it's kind of in the name, but where would you say it's practiced mm. based on the work that you've done? I really like all your caveats there. I think um, okay. <laughs> but what you're doing there is just illustrating so nicely how contentious and problematic this word which is, which mm. um, you know, lots of these, these discussions around um, 
different labels are also trying to find their way through. Um, so that kind of European, British, um, religious form of witchcraft practice, um, where you will find it will depend on kind of what sort of witch you are looking for or what sort of witch you are you will encounter. Um, it will depend on whether those people see their practice as, as religious um, or as a craft. Um, they may belong to structured, solid, uh, structured initiatory groups or work as a solitary. In my work, I've met people who um, mostly who are kind of somewhere between the two. That often they have um, started out by being initiated into small groups, but then left and joined other groups, worked informally, sometimes completely the other direction. They've spent a long time working on their own um, through reading books, working, you know, finding information online, um, going standing outside in the woods. Uh, and um, some are quite secret, aren't they? You know, this isn't necessarily something secret. that they feel, I think a, it seems like quite a lot are, are quite um, apprehensive about that side of themselves that they don't necessarily um, want to dive into the taboo which we can also get into in a bit as well i think so yes and i think that one of the things that um, one of the things that i've um, had to navigate in my research is that because i wasn't at least in the first instant interested in magical practice i wasn't interested in the the details of ritual i didn't want to become initiated the secret um or an initiatory group, as other anthropologists have done before me. Like Norman um, or Sabina Mayoko. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, Susan Greenwood um, and others. Um, so what I was interested in is how witches talked about history in, in kind of public and quasi-public places like conferences and pub groups and um, online and um, in walking... Yeah, and in podcasts, <laughs> they didn't exist back in, but yes, but then it's all there now. Um, so I've taken us away from your question. So we're going um, to sort of this idea of like being a bit afraid, I think is the right way to put it, to say that they are practicing, you know. Um, so, well, so, um, so where is witchcraft being practiced? That was your question. Yes. It, um, it can be anywhere. You will have groups who, who will, you know, if we look at the history of Gardnerian witchcraft in 20th century Britain, it looks like that's mostly happening behind the neck curtains of suburban English homes. Um, when we read the literature, it's, you know, that is evident, but also you've got um, a coven in the, um, you know, Gardnerian coven and he talks about in the naturist um, camp in Hertfordshire, but the writings of Doreen Valiente, you know, there's lots of stories of running around the woodlands in the south of England on a moonlit night. Um, people practice kind of solitary in their own homes. Maybe they have a, or if they're part of groups, they will still maybe have a, um, a shrine in their houses, but they are equally likely to be meeting on beaches, you know, in the woods, in on the moors, in the... Um, in the city parks, um, or just practicing as a, as a as an individual um, while taking a stroll, mm. thinking about the trees, the sky, the moon, the sun, the season, the time of year. Um, sounds like quite a, similar to mindfulness in many respects. You know, just sort of being present in the moment. I think that's a very interesting connection. I'll have to think about that one. Yes, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. 
You did say to us that um, within uh, modern British witchcraft, mm-hmm. they've been having these heated debates about the history of their religious movement for several decades. And you, you've you even said outside of this conversation, you know, 20 years ago, it was very different than from 10 years ago, than from five years ago to today. And that this has led to some interesting questions about how, and I put British witches in brackets because everybody's different, but how, as a general rule, many of them have learned to approach and make sense of their past. And I was wondering if you could dive in a bit more and tell us a bit more about that. Mm, Yes, and this is like the main core of what I have been interested in, although it leads to lots of other really interesting questions. Um, 20, more than 20 years ago, when I first started Um, doing my field work and spending time with witches and pagans, um, mostly who called themselves traditional witches or um, solitary witches, but there were quite a lot of Wiccans in there, witches of different forms, um, were having a big discussion about what kind of history modern witchcraft had. And that was principally whether or not the... Um, shall we call them the orthodox histories that were written by Gerald Gardner in the mid-20th century that had followed the work of writers like Margaret Murray, who had said that witchcraft was a um, was a, a continuous religious practice leading right back to antiquity in the form of a pagan fertility religion that was practiced by priestesses, uh, venerating a horned god. Um, Now, this is something that you find in the mid-20th century literature of modern witchcraft. It's something that you find in Margaret Murray's historical work in the early 20th century. But historians um, have done a lot of work to discredit that history from the 1950s, 60s onwards and tell us that Margaret Murray's work really has no real basis in the historical record. Now, that doesn't stop it from being a really important part of modern witchcraft history and also being quite core to a lot of modern witchcraft ritual practices because while Gerald Gardner is pulling together his kind of his organization and the rituals and he's working on those practices and there's all sorts of things that are found in kind of folklore and um, other um, documents and other kind of ideas around spiritualism and so forth that he brings together. Um, But it doesn't have this, it is really demonstrated that it does not have this long continuous history. But in the 80s and 1980s and 1990s and in the first decades of the 21st century, um, which is uh, having an argument about whether or not that is a, it is true or not, because lots of them would say, well, witches were demonized, they were persecuted, they weren't writing it down. It was an oral tradition. So it's a problem of the historian's evidence that they have not been able to find traces of it. Of course, they wouldn't be able to find it because like, it's not meant to have a... by King James or whomever else. Yeah, so. it's not meant to have a recorded history. So in fact, the, 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 the lack of evidence is not in itself evidence of a of a lack of a historical trace. Um, there are plenty of um, scholars like Margot Adler, Margot Adler, um, mm. Ronald Hutton, who since the 1980s, 1990s, have been writing detailed 
well, Ronald Hutton in particular has been writing detailed histories of where the histories of modern witchcraft actually do come from and traces them across romantic philosophies and enlightenment movements and 19th century anthropological comparative religions. Um, and so there is this really rich history where he says that modern witchcraft is invented out of these, all of these different forms of traditions that are rooted in an English magical religious um, pagan, modern pagan practice. Um, and so the while witches were having these arguments, more and more often they would be going, okay, we need to, um, we're looking a bit, if some of us are looking or feeling a bit foolish and a bit irrational. And we do have to acknowledge what history really is and what history really has to say. And that um, the historians tell us that that history is not true and that modern witchcraft is a, um, a modern thing. Um, would you say, if I could cut you off and again mm. be a bit controversial, um, would you say that uh, witchcraft traditions today are an invented tradition? Mm, well, I think that probably all traditions are invented traditions. Yeah, and I'm and um, I'm not trying so, to propose one or the yeah. other, but I just know it's a discussion that comes up quite a lot in you know anthropology. Yeah. We talk Eric Hogsbaum talks about invented. We traditions do, and mm. and so from that perspective. Um, I'd just be curious to know what has been your understanding of it and maybe yeah. have practitioners I I said anything about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that practitioners more and more might talk about things being an invented tradition. But nevertheless, I think that I am hesitant to use that term because I think it 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 seeks to kind of to, to stabilize and reify the very thing that you're trying to maybe disrupt. Because if it's an inventory tradition, then you feel like, well, maybe it's happening like it all in one go. Whereas these things are much, much more um, flexible and fluid and, and changeable. So maybe so, potentially? Yeah, possibly, yeah. And um, you know, we, will, we, we can meet lots of contemporary witches who will be absolutely adamant that their personal connection is much older and more authentic than Gardnerian practices. But if you look at the rituals that they're carrying out, then they're very similar. Um, but it doesn't mean that they're, you know, it, it may well be that their traditions are older and have been, and may, you know, we may not have the evidence for it, but along the way, all of those other more modern traditions and rituals may have been taken up. So it's a much, much messier, I think, um, and much more entangled history and it's, I'm not sure that it always helps by asserting that a tradition has been invented because there might be some moments where we can see some really explicit moments of creativity. Doreen Valiente writing The Charge of the Goddess, for example, a really significant um, poem um, with the ritual and we can see that as a moment of great creativity and really important um, um, spiritual practice. But does that make it an invented tradition? I'm not sure. Mm, yeah, um, I might be being a bit semantic here. No, but I think I think that's always the thing when we, you know, there, there are always going to be those two topics that are always going to ruffle people's feathers, regardless. It's going to be politics and it's going to be religion. And I think especially um, as outsiders like you and I, um, there's um, an awareness on our part, A, not to be disrespectful, 
and B, realizing that we are in a position where, you know, there's not a practitioner who can speak for themselves. And so there needs to be a wariness and respect of that, you know, that, um, you know, we're outsiders talking about a subject where, you know, if an insider were in there, they would be able to at least speak from their own experience and obviously not for an entire community, but they would be able to at least have their voice be heard. And so I think things like invented tradition, again, as an outsider, we have to be mindful that um, we don't want to um, disparage or necessarily talk poorly about a community that we obviously have developed, you know, in some cases developed friendships with or whomever, and then we respect. And so we want to make sure that uh, those relationships can be maintained. Absolutely. Yes. But I think what you're also um, pointing out in that is that um, how how important it is, which I think is really, really interesting for not just witches, but for many, whether they're magical religious movements um, or, or other things, to have a, a long history. Why is it so important to have a long history? I mean, I don't know the answer to this question, but I think it's really fascinating. You know, if you have a long history, somehow it's more legitimate or more authentic. And that there is seem to be something somehow spurious about being newer or more creative and i think that's but do you interesting yeah i was going to say do you think that that need by by no i'm not just talking about Mm. within the witchcraft community Mm. community community but there's especially if you're fighting up against a society that um has its own perceptions that maybe there's that need it's almost like having that degree to box to tick on your cv to say look i'm i'm not um i'm not what you think um, I've, I'm valid, I'm worthy, and that maybe that might play into it as well. Yeah, there is something that we validate because it has historical depth. And that in itself, I think, is an interesting question. Mm. So, um, well, and yeah, go on. What I was going to say is that what, I, what seems to then happen in the British witchcraft modern movement as they were kind of taking on these more realist and rationalist histories of the movement is that um, now I have a couple of friends who say that I am too um, I make this too um, sort of self-evident or, or or deliberate and I don't think it is the case I don't think people are really making a um, a conscious necessarily distinction between different types of histories when they do this but the effect of it I think is that round by about I don't know 2008 2010 something like that um, there was a, a very distinct acceptance that modern witchcraft had a shallow realist movement and that maybe if you were interested in the Margaret Murray and the garden stuff, then you would accept that as a, um, a really valuable foundation and not as a realist history. Mm. In itself, at the, but at the same time, the desire to have connections to the deep past um, would be found then through other forms. And this is not necessarily a conscious distinction, but then you have like one thing, which is the history of your movement, which is relatively recent, but then you have a history of magical practice or magical consciousness, which is timeless, um, ahistorical, truly deep and without any realist or rational history. And whether that is being accessed through walking on a sacred landscape, whether it's through standing at a, an ancient, um, stone circle 
or thinking about the stars or the planetary cycles or the seasons, um, singing, the idea of drawing on a, a more oral tradition of thinking about materiality of ritual objects or of, um, of precious metals or of plants or of thinking about how do you contact non-human persons in otherworldly situations, that how do you do those kinds of rituals, that they provide a different kind of historical experience that is very different from that realist explanation of the history of modern witchcraft. And then how those then get um, entangled together to come up, you know, to kind of construct a, a connection to a past is, um, I think, becomes one of the driving forces of, uh, of of histories of modern witchcraft over mm. the last 10, 20 years. Wow. And what, and what happens, well, sorry, one more thing. Go and then ahead. what happens in that is that you have a different set of ancestors rather than those kind of Gardnerian Murray-esque ancestors of um, ancient pagan priestesses. You know, they're, still, they're still probably in stories and oral histories and, and ritual practices and, and ideas, but the ancestors become much more likely to be those cunning folk and those wise women because they are on the one hand there is evidence of them in the written record even though they're not modern witches or wiccans or any of the things that we might associate with it today but there are you know there are as lots and lots of recorded evidence of cunning practices and cunning folk um but at the same time they're there in the record but at the same time they create a, a ready and vibrant connection to all of those ideas about how do you contact as a human, all of those non-human magical consciousness, spirituality, um, energies, whatever we want to call them. Okay. And what part would you say uh, that revisionist history has played in the British witchcraft community today? Okay. I think really that's probably what I've just been saying, isn't it? The, um, so I, I've leapt ahead there, I'm sorry. That's okay. Yes. Um, so I think that what that uh, what that revisionist history, that moving away from those orthodox Gardnerian Murray-esque um, histories of ancient pagan priestesses as a single thread connecting um, the past to the present, um, has been um, a downplaying of the idea of a pagan priestess and bringing into focus the cunning women and the wise women and the cunning folk. Um, of the last, you know, the sort of 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century Britain. Um, always present, you know, we've got, we can find those, um, we can find those characters in Gardnerian writing, we can find them in Margaret Murray's work. They're very, very powerful in the writing of people like Dorian Valiente, for example. Um, so it's not that this is a new character, but I think the emphasis on the cunning woman um, or cunning folk um, as an ancestral source is more central now than it was 20 years ago because it is able to do many things in terms of having that place in the historical record but also as a, a sort of a pivotal ancestral connection to forms of magical practice and ritual or not okay. ritual is the way that the modern witches understand it cut the ritual <laughs> magical practice I think or understanding. 
And if we could kind of dive in back, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier this this idea of, of taboo, right? Um, why do you think studying British witchcraft is considered by mainstream society to be considered uh, taboo? And do you think, especially with social media and the rise of feminist movement or interpretations of feminist movement, do you think um, this perception is changing? I think that's really interesting. Um, I think it is always in ebbs and flows. And I think we are currently in a really heightened period where um, where the witch has, has become a really strong feminist symbol. And um, the associations between accusations of witchcraft, witchcraft practices um, and feminism are um, really strong. And you see that in popular media, all across social media. We can think about the witches of Instagram. We can think about witch talk. Some of, you know, which play with magical practice to varying different degrees. Um, but also the idea of, of witchcraft is a very sort of strong political um, set of actions, uh, mm. which we see, I think, particularly with the witches of Instagram. Um, so, Oh, studying British witchcraft is something that's a bit taboo. I think for a lot of um, anthropologists or a lot of social sciences, it's not so much taboo as maybe a little bit, a little bit irrational. Um, you you can say embarrassing, and I I a little say bit embarrassing. Because- <laughs> you know, it, it's not, it's not to be again, you know, uh, yeah. you know, discredit practitioners necessarily, but um, I know mm. myself, uh, when I uh, went to the conference, actually, you were talking, you, you that's how I, I knew who you were. And it was, mm. it was fascinating for me. It was hand over heart, the most interesting conference I ever went to. Um, and then I, I went to a party afterwards and I was speaking to some anthropologists and one of them, and I was kind of on a buzz and he said, well, what did you do? And I said, I went, I went to a conference and were all these druids and witches and he, he just looked at me in like utter disgust, like what? And I thought, isn't that sad? I mean, we've all spent our lives trying to be respectful of others and to be open to other people's perceptions, whether we agree or disagree. And then I mentioned this one thing and you just, you just, just dismissed it as like child's play. And, you know, again, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but it does seem like within, within anthropology, and I'm, I'm going to be quite honest about this, um, and it is going to be controversial. There's still very much a colonialist mindset within our field, especially within British anthropology. And it's this idea that it's okay if it comes from African subcontinent, African continent, and if it comes from Asia, but if it comes within our own backyard, A, it doesn't count as culture, and B, it's not that important. And I find that quite troubling that if we want to step outside of this colonialist mindset, then we need to reassess our interpretations. Again, that doesn't mean you have to necessarily agree doesn't even mean you have to like it, but that colonialist element does need to be extracted from the way in which you practice our discipline. And I think from my perspective, looking at this, even for a short period of time, made me realize even more so how, how problematic this, this could be within our discipline. Yes, yes. I think that is really interesting. I think partly it connects to the... Um, the um, the overlap between the different uses of the word witch that you were talking about earlier. We said we're only going to be talking about modern witchcraft as a sort of modern magical religious practice today. Um, But there are all sorts of places where the word witch is still really troublesome. It's really problematic. But if we look at the anthropological literature from the, the 1990s onwards, then ideas about 
occult economies, for example, ideas mm. about witchcraft were being seen as a, a model for some sort of creative um, modernity. Um, whereas I think often within a, um, a European or a, or a British context, they are seen to be connected to kind of folklore or irrationality um, or are looking backwards. And I think some of these questions around you know, the problem of folklore as a form of knowledge are, are really relevant. And witchcraft seems to um, to drive some of those connections deeper, I think. Yes, yeah, so it becomes something that is... Um, is is often yeah in a in a 21st century that is ostensibly secular um which you know although we can see there's so much literature isn't there about um um our culture um and that the world is continually re-enchanted that you know the world is not really so secular but yeah studying modern witchcraft is um often seen as problematic well, and I think that's the thing. It's like anything we talk about this rabbit holes. You go in thinking you're going to study one thing and then you come out yeah. and something else. And for me, when I was looking at, at, you know, British witchcraft, I went in thinking I was going to look at ritual and whatever. And okay. I walked out really realizing that actually we've, <laughs> we've got to decolonialize our discipline, which wasn't at all... <laughs> I was looking at it. Um, and then I found this to be the case when I did research in Europe and realized that, you know, I wasn't... Um, as um, air quote relevant, even though I was talking about segregation, which is extremely relevant. Um, again, it wasn't in the, so to speak, right continents. And so it wasn't going to be um, necessarily uh, viewed to the same standard, didn't have that exotic box. And um, I just find that whole thing uh, quite problematic, quite frankly, when we when we start yeah. really deconstructing our own understandings of, you know, we go into this discipline to question uh, the way society is and we end up walking away questioning our own discipline and how we've been trained yeah, yeah. and all of those um, really important decolonizing conversations are so much to do with those particular categories of thoughts and ideas that um, are at the center so absolutely mm. yeah but with respect to your rabbit hole question you know i end up um i was very clear at the start of my research that i wasn't really very interested in magic because i was interested in how people thought about history what I have had to accept, you know, over the years and really learn to understand is how much a magical form of consciousness for many British witches is a really significant historical thread or an evidential thread. Um, mm. So it does challenge some of those ideas, I think. Definitely. Yeah. Well, um, could you tell us a little bit, because uh, you did talk about it kind of briefly in the beginning, but could you tell us a bit about the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle and Cornwall, please? Yes, very happily. The um, Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, if you've not been there, is in the small town of Boscastle on the north coast of Cornwall, right in this little valley. Um, when you It's on the edge of the craggy coast. You've got the sea. Apparently there are seals. They never come out for me. Um, and when you get there, you're driving down these winding roads over the, you know, under the overhanging tree. Just in itself, it feels like a um, <clears throat> quite an enchanting experience. You feel like you are coming downwards into a different kind of world. Um, but it was established um, in the museum itself was established by Cecil Williamson in the 19 kind of 40s and 50s. First of all, on the Isle of Man as the Museum of um, Folklore and um, Superstition and, and, and Magic. Um, 
He had Gerald Gardner for a little while as his resident witch. And, and Gerald can you tell Gardner. us who Gerald Gardner was? I know you've mentioned him briefly. Okay. For those who have yeah. no idea okay. who he is. So, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, Gerald Gardner was a, um, would be considered by many to be one of the founding figures of contemporary British or even now global modern religious witchcraft. He was a retired, well, he was a civil servant. He had a very colonial um, life and on his retirement came back to Britain, was also interested in um, Druidry, was interested in occultism, um, was interested in, in weapons. Um, and in his biography has a lot of, ex, you know, a lot of places where he's talking about how he's um, meeting magical workers of different kinds. Um, but he claims that when he came back to Britain in the 1930s, he went and joined a, a theatre group on, in the New Forest in the 1930s and just happened to be um, uncovering the, um, the authentic continuous tradition of um, an ancient witchcraft practice, Wicca, um, that he just found himself initiated in. And he first of all wrote a, a novel and then he um, later published a book witchcraft today in which he outlined the history and the rituals and the practices he set up a, a coven in hertfordshire in um a a shed um on a um, a nudist camp in Bricketts wood um in which he pulled his coven together um, and continued to write and to have lots of media interviews he went out to the Isle of Man to um, work with Cecil Williamson in his witchcraft museum, ended up buying the witchcraft museum from him and spending the next um, few years running the witchcraft museum there on his own terms. Um, there are, oh, I have to stop because there are too many things to That's say. That's okay. So the, the, from there, you said Cecil Williams yes. ended up. Cecil Williamson brings his museum back to the mainland. And um, after a series of unsuccessful locations, arrives in Boscastle because it's a really good tourist spot. So um, there's a, a sense of magical Cornwall. There are various sacred sites around there or historically significant spiritual sites that I will talk about later um, or another time. And um, but there is a well-trodden path and it will support itself. You know, a museum, a small independent museum needs to have an income. So you need not only to have something that will attract all the witches who want to see their history and who want to make those kind of pilgrimages to your museum, but also you need to be able to um, entertain the passing trade. And so Williamson did that in you know really well he made a sensationalist museum with lots of kind of strange dioramas of odd ritual you know kind of things that might not be out of the place in a muse of the world um expose on modern witchcraft um but lots of the people who i hear from who have who visited the museum during his um you know when he his museum say yeah if you knew where to look what you saw was not these big sensationalist accounts, but this quiet history of what Williamson called the story of the wayside witch, which is the, the hedge witch, maybe the wise woman, the, the story of the cunning folk. And through these artifacts and belongings and um, um, you know, magical tools of those 
wise women secreted. Um, lots of famous modern witches knew Williamson. He was also um, very theatrical and had a history of being of um, of of earlier occultism and witchcraft and different um, kind of childhood exposés. Um, also had a colonial past. Um, had a was a part of the film industry. Um, apparently was part of a, a secret um, mission during the Second World War about kind of illusion. Um, so there's lots of really interesting biographical stuff. Um, and has a very successful museum. Yeah. Really well connected with um, the witchcraft and occultists across Britain and America throughout the 70s, 80s. And in his 90s, in his own 90s, he then sold the museum and the collection to Graham King, who took the museum over in 1996. And by this time, the museum really needed, you know, it was um, uh, needed modernizing. And Graham theme kind of made it more thematic. So whereas um, Williamson's museum was um, maybe a bit more random, you had these dioramas or these these tableaus, um, but the there wasn't much um, narrative, narrative. And Graham Kim came along and gave it a very clear narrative about these objects are to do with kind of history or ideas around persecution or to do with Cornwall um, or sacred sites. And these are the stories of modern witchcraft. And these are um, you know, objects that belonged to famous people of the 1970s. Um, but here is also the story of the wise women. And in that, he built um, a wise woman's cottage in the middle of the museum that is meant to represent a, you know, a sort of a, a generic 19th century rural witch's um, home. And there are all sorts of magical tools and artifacts that are um, laid out on the table and hanging from the walls like strings of hold stones, um, lengths of knotted rope that are all meant to show the working practices of a rural country, Wayside Witch. Um, alongside that, Graham um, set up a library out of um, Williamson's. And you can do research there as well, can't you? You can. You can't at the moment because of COVID, but mm. in principle, you can. There's a really excellent archive. Um, Graham set up the website. He um, put together a digital database. Um, and he was doing this you know, quite a long time ago when large public institutions were proudly showing off that they had digitalized. You know, yes, OK, maybe it's much larger, but maybe they digitalized you know, 5% of their um, collection. And he was going, no, with everything we've got, is, you can see it online. Um, he set up, well, along with some um, some of the the volunteers who he who helped him with this overhaul, um, set up a Friends of the Museum organization. So there's lots of, um, of um, changes over that time. In 2013, he handed the collection over to Simon Costin, who was the director of the Museum of um, British Folklore, which you might familiar with at the moment because there's been a really interesting exhibition in London between the Museum of British Folklore and the artist Ben Edge called Ritual okay. Britain. So okay. that's another thing that's there. 
Um, so Simon has just continued to modernize and update. Um, he took out one gallery and created a space for um, annual exhibitions of different themes. So there's been things about kind of puppets and curses. There have been things about kind of Cornish um, folklore. Um, and it, it has, it just continues to be um, a really successful small um, micro museum that doesn't okay. have any public funds. Um, it works as a sense of heritage for modern pagans and witches, but who all contribute to that kind of that continuing story of these complicated histories. Wonderful. Well, could you give, before we wrap up, could you give our yes. listeners a taste of what you will be talking about in our bonus episode, which will be available to our patrons later this month? Yes, I'm really looking forward to doing this. So thank you again for all of these opportunities to just keep mm. talking. Um, what I'm going to be talking about in my, my small talk is the uncanny spaces in the land around the Museum of Magic and Witchcraft. And I'll be starting with that idea that when Cecil Williamson arrived there, yes, it was an important um, tourist spot. Um, but it was also something that he considered to be a very kind of magical landscape through um, a, um, a carved labyrinth in the rock, rocky valley further up the hill. Um, a really important, um, important, um, very sure. tall, what was high, tall, deep waterfall. Um, it was a waterfall. A waterfall. It was a very, <laughs> a very, um, in Necton's Glen, which is considered to be a space where you may encounter other worlds. And this is in Cornwall near Boston. Both of correct? these are yeah. in Cornwall. They are, if you are a very good walker, they are in walking distance of the Museum of Witchcraft. Um, okay. But, um, but they, so I don't want to talk about the museum as such. I want to kind of think about the other places that people visit in order to think about the word uncanny and why we think that that is always something that is frightening. And are there maybe other ways to think about um, how maybe witches and pagans, but maybe people who don't identify that, think about an inspirited world through particular sites in the landscape. Wonderful. That is going to be very interesting. And with that, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Helen again for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional links to today's topic will be available in the show notes. Also, make sure to head on over to our Instagram page to see pictures of the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, including photos with yours truly. And if you enjoyed the show, then please remember to like and subscribe and ring the bell if you're listening to us on YouTube, as well as consider becoming a patron. The more you tell your friends about the show, the more episodes we'll be able to create. In the meantime, we'd like to showcase our next CNC winner where we pick out of a hat a coffee and cocktails follower from our social media platforms to win a peach of, piece of merchandise. And the winner is Lucy Dobson. Make sure to reach out to us to get your prize. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week. 